Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work, go with the card that puts the travel in business travel, the Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. This episode is brought to you by Pipedrive, the easy and effective CRM for closing more deals and driving small business growth. New year, new targets. Pipedrive allows you to automate your sales process so you can focus on your other business priorities in 2024. With Pipedrive, you can stay on top of your sales activities so you never miss a follow-up. So sign up today and get a special 60-day free trial now at pipedrive.com with the code BUILT. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Guy here. So have you ever thought about starting a business? And if so, what would it be? How do you come up with an idea? How do you find the money to start? How do you get the word out about your product or service? What do you do if your idea isn't working? And how do you pivot? Well, to answer those questions, I've written a book. It's called What Else? How I Built This, and it's full of inspiring stories from some of the greatest leaders and entrepreneurs in the world who've been through the trenches, made big mistakes, and lived to tell the tale. If you're looking to start something or just want to be inspired by those who have built incredible things, pick up How I Built This Now wherever you buy your books or by visiting GuyRaz.com. And thanks. Hey, everyone, and welcome to How I Built This Resilience Edition. On these episodes, we're talking with entrepreneurs and other business leaders about how they're coping during this very challenging time. And today, we're going to hear from John Zimmer, the co-founder of the ride-hailing app Lyft. We first spoke with John back in 2017, but now, fast forward a few years, and like most of us, John is dealing with challenges he never anticipated. But when we spoke a few days ago, he sounded pretty optimistic. Personally, I'm doing okay. I think, uh, you know, the business has had a tough time, uh, but has seen some really strong recovery uh, since the bottom. Uh, We were down about 75% at the peak um, in terms of rideshare rides. We've now returned to uh, a little under half down, uh, which is actually good progress. You know, we've always been a very long-term minded company. Uh, We've had hard times before, We've always been the challenger brand. And so actually, I think moments like this are opportunities for us and our team to shine. And so happy to share some of that with you today. Yeah, I want to I talk about that. I mean, let's let's first talk about like kind of drill down into some of the challenges first. Um, there's no question that this has to be the most challenging time in your, you know, in your leadership of Lyft. It's, I think it's the most challenging time for any business leader or founder around the world today for a variety of reasons. Um, 
And as you mentioned, it's been a tough year for Lyft. You had to have some layoffs in May, I think about a thousand layoffs, um, which could not have been easy for you to go through. So as you began to see the pandemic having a, a significant impact on on your business, what kinds of conversations did, were you having with your, your leadership team, with your co-founder, Logan, about ways to kind of begin to, to build resilience? One of the conversations that we've had or one of the, the challenges throughout uh, is how many different audiences, groups of people that we're working to take care of throughout this, right? So we have our drivers, we have our riders, we have our employees. Uh, within employees, there's uh, those that are working in person uh, to help drivers at operation centers, and there, there are those that could work from home. So all different populations that we want to take care of, uh, investors as well, who, who are judging those decisions we make. So I think that's been a really interesting conversation. Also, the conversations around short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. There are short-term decisions we need to make in order to preserve the long-term mission that we have as a company. Uh, and those have been really key decisions. You talked about the layoff. That was very, very difficult. It forced us to make hard decisions, some of which I think actually, uh, in hindsight, were very healthy for the business, but very difficult to make, especially for people that are all in this tough time where, where, where the job market is difficult. Uh, those were not easy decisions. Let's talk about some of the short-term decisions that you had to take. I mean, you are a publicly traded company, um, so you're obviously accountable to investors and it's everything's on the table. You have to review. You can't hide anything. First of all, just to keep the business operating and to get you through this time, because this is going to be a, a challenging year and there may be a recovery next year for you. We'll talk about that in a moment, but you knew this was going to be a tough year. So was one of those decisions to retain as much cash on hand? Um, was that one of the initial decisions that, that you guys had to take? Yeah, obviously. So we, we, we look at the cash that we have on hand. We also raised uh, our first debt to add cushion. Well, we're actually in quite a, a strong position. We're lucky that we went public when we did and have you know near, nearly $3 billion in the bank. What we did to start is we ran all different scenarios. We said, okay, if we were 75% down for six months or two quarters, you know, what would the situation be like for cash? If we were down, you know, for four quarters, what would it be like for cash? We ran, you know, the, the worst case scenarios, the medium case scenarios, and the best case scenarios, and then made the decision that, you know, raising the debt was kind of an, a no regrets move. But then also, to your point, preserving the cash that we do have on hand, uh, making decisions about expenses that we had in the office that were more of a luxury, making decisions around certain teams uh, that we needed to uh, tighten up. For example, on the, on the operating side, uh, there were some markets where we had to close some of our centers. What are you finding out from users? Like why, what is, what is it that is preventing them from using Lyft? Is it basically that they just don't have anywhere to go or is it, is it the fear of being in a car with somebody else? It's a mix of both. You know, first I think it's people changing their transportation behavior, their actual transportation behavior. And then secondarily, uh, it's obviously the the questions around health safety, and, and I'd love to walk through what we're doing on, on that end. As you open the app, uh, we ask both driver and rider to confirm that they're wearing a mask. Uh, we right. ask driver and rider to confirm that they haven't been in contact with anyone uh, that has COVID, and we ask everyone to keep their areas clean and open windows if possible. So that's gone a long way. I mean, if you if you zoom out, actually, the fact that half as many rides are being taken now as before, I'm actually quite happy with in a strange way because I know many people that are, they're not going into the office. 
So that's a huge change in transportation. So the fact that one out of two rides are still present, even in this environment, shows some flexibility in the model because we've seen different types of rides. We've seen a lot of essential workers using this way more because there are other options, potentially public transportation, are things that they're more concerned about from a health safety perspective. And so we've seen those rides increase. I mean, one of the things that you you did before the pandemic was to diversify. I mean, Lyft um, invested in bike share programs and in, and in the scooter programs in, in certain urban areas around the country. Given that the ride share part of your business is still the core part of your business, what are conversations you're having internally about creating other revenue streams in the future to, you know, if rideshare doesn't recover as quickly as you hope or expect, or if, you know, if rideshare is, is a completely different thing in the future? What what other kind of places are you looking to diversify? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the good news is transportation uh, is fundamental and is something that through the recovery is going to be important and people will need. So one on, on bikes, you know, we own the system City Bike in New York City, Bay Wheels in the Bay, Divi in Chicago, and you can access them through Lyft. And uh, for City Bike in New York, I believe it was last weekend, we hit our record of over, over 100,000 rides in one day. And so we're actually seeing faster recovery and, and not as deep downside on, on those modes, which has been really helpful. The other area we've looked at is delivery. So we have no intention to be another kind of food delivery consumer app. We will not do that. But there's a lot of small and local businesses that are having to pay 30%, 20% of their revenue to be on those platforms. And so we think there's a huge opportunity to help those small and local businesses have their own kind of capabilities and provide more jobs for drivers. So we're experimenting with that. Uh, we started that with, with essential deliveries. Uh, we've uh, worked with partners to deliver millions of meals for people in need during this time. Uh, so I think that's another really interesting opportunity on the driver's side. I want to ask you about an initiative that you recently put out. I think it's called Resilient Streets, where you asked urban planners to sketch out plans for what cities will look like with fewer cars. Um, basically, uh, you know, city streets that are designed for more bikes and e-scooters and e-bikes and so on. Um, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, your business model depends on cars and, and ride shares. So walk me through the thinking behind this and how would that affect your business model in the future? Yeah. So if you zoom out and you think about our, our mission, improve people's lives with the world's best transportation, from the beginning, we looked at the fact that Americans spend $9,000 every year owning and operating a car that they use 4% of the time. They spend more money on their car than they do on food, than they do on healthcare. The only thing they spend more money on than their car is their house. And to us, that doesn't make any sense. So we want to create a whole new way for people to access transportation because we think by doing that, we can allow cities to be built around people instead of car ownership, right? We have so much parking everywhere. Studies show when you build more streets, you get more traffic. And so especially in a moment like now, when you can rethink everything or that you're forced to rethink everything, thinking about street design is, is critical. You know, we have uh, the bikes, as I mentioned, across the country. There would be a lot more people using bikes if there was safe bike infrastructure. There would be a lot more people walking and enjoying local commerce in cities if uh, it was always safe for pedestrians and, and there was easy access uh, throughout the city there is going to be transportation in cars, in vehicles. 
that will always be important. But the infrastructure needed, uh, whether that's parking or the number of streets that we have or the lack of safe streets for bikes uh, and pedestrians needs to change. So, I mean, could you imagine a future where the bulk of your business comes from people using bicycles and e-scooters and other modes of transport? I think in like a very urban core. I mean, Manhattan is a great example. I forget the average speed uh, of a car in Manhattan. Yeah, it's like it's like seven miles an hour or something. It's single digits. It's not very impressive. So in urban cores, micromobility or bikes and scooters, uh, as those vehicles get better and better and safer and safer, and as the street infrastructure adapts to make the environment safer, absolutely it can be the best way, the fastest way, the cleanest way, and the most enjoyable way to get around your city. All right, let's get to some questions, John. Um, actually, Madeline Chen had a question that I think we just answered. Her question was, is Lyft considering diversifying beyond ride-sharing transportation? And Well, one other, if it's okay, one other uh, mode that we've been uh, really excited to launch uh, or to grow even in this environment has been a rental service that we created. Uh, so car rentals. As we get people out of car ownership, there are use cases. If you go away on a weekend on a you know, two-hour drive and you don't own a car, having easy access to a car rental is important. So with Lyft rentals, uh, you get a Lyft to the car rental location that we operate, and then you can just grab the keys and go. There's no counter. It's really fast and easy. And in COVID, we launched a kind of contactless experience to get the car. Uh, we also announced a partnership with Sixth. Uh, which is a European car rental operator, such that we brought that technology and that access through our app uh, to their vehicles as well. Um, this is a question from Kyle Ashcraft from Facebook. Kyle asks, what do you see as a future for subscription-based ride sharing? I know we talked about that at the How I Built This Summit, which was you had a vision for in the future, you know, people will have subscriptions for bikes and for e-scooters and for Lyft rides. What, what's the status of that? Yeah, I love that question. Uh, we have a program called uh, Lyft Pink, which is our subscription service. And so you, you pay a monthly fee to get a 15% discount on all rideshare rides, uh, as well as access to bikes and scooters. Uh, we're even testing unlimited access to bikes and scooters. So this is live. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to be testing you know, upgrades on your car rental. So by having all these different consumer transportation options, Lyft Pink can become your transportation wallet, can become the most affordable way to access transportation. When we come back in just a moment, I'll ask John about one of the biggest debates in the world of ride hailing, whether drivers should be thought of as independent contractors or employees. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This Resilience Edition from NPR. As a business-to-business -business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long, and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and 
I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash built this. Terms and conditions apply. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. Now, picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass helps you actually do it. There are over 200 classes to pick from, like Anna Wintour's Masterclass on Creativity and Leadership that's helped lots of people learn new ways to nurture talent and make bold decisions, two things that are essential for any leader or entrepreneur. Plus, Every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com built. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com built. Masterclass.com built. Hey, so if you're a business owner or hiring manager struggling to attract and retain top talent, it's no secret that finding the right employees and keeping them engaged can be an uphill battle. Fortunately, there's Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices, and your people will get the training tools they need to thrive. Download their free ebook at insperity.com for tips to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your goals. Spend less time worrying about recruitment and retention and more time growing your business. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This Resilience Edition. And I'm speaking with John Zimmer of Lyft. And you may have seen the company in the news this summer because it's been lobbying hard for a California ballot initiative called Proposition 22. And I'm oversimplifying here, but basically, if it passes, it will overturn a state law that would require companies like Uber and Lyft to treat their drivers as W-2 employees, not contractors. But as you can imagine, the issue is pretty heated. A lot of people have... Are, are angry on all sides of this. Um, there are drivers who support the initiative, drivers who oppose the initiative, consumers who support and oppose it. So first of all, can you explain from your perspective, why would it be so hard to treat your drivers like part-time employees? Well, I think first it's starting with the fact that many of our drivers already have full-time work. The majority, something like 80% of our drivers, maybe in California it's 86% of drivers, drive less than 20 hours a week. This is something someone does maybe five hours a week, 10 hours a week. Yes, of course, there's people that are doing it 40 hours a week, but the far majority are doing it less. And I think it's important to zoom out and and have the nuanced part of the conversation, which is what do we want to accomplish? What is the right thing to do here? The right thing to do is to get benefits for drivers, depending on how much they work. If you're going to drive for five hours for three months, to save money for a wedding or for a medical expense, the, the way we're being you know, forced into employment would, would make that not tenable. And so what we're saying is, okay, so let's look at this new form of work. 
let's not ignore that these drivers deserve benefits, but let's have the benefits scale with the amount of work that we do. Uh, and so Prop 22 is that middle ground. We're saying here's a better solution that provides health care uh, for drivers driving, you know, 15 hours or greater. So just to clarify, I mean, your position is we don't oppose providing benefits to people who drive for Lyft, but we want to be able to scale those. So if you drive more, we want to be able to offer those benefits. But you're essentially saying you don't want the state to legislate and regulate and force you to do this? No, I mean, we're not, you know, the type of company that says, uh, that is against regulations. We think regulations make a lot of sense. We think labor protections make a lot of sense. I think the labor movement in this country has been critical uh, for workers in America. And I think we have a new form of work that five years ago, I went to our general counsel and said, how can we get benefits to drivers that are driving uh, more on the platform? And she said, well, you'd have to classify everyone as an employee. And then 80 to 90% of drivers likely wouldn't uh, be able to drive on the platform. And so we've been trying to find a portable benefit type structure for a while. Four to one drivers support Prop 22 uh, versus the alternative. Uh, and so we've heard their voices and we've incorporated that into Prop 22. When you go to Sacramento, um, when you make this argument to legislators, you know, what is it that you're not able to convince them of? The politics, honestly. So I've not only spoken to legislators uh, and politicians. I've talked to labor leaders, listened and provided this viewpoint, uh, listened to drivers, listened to all these constituents. And the majority, if not all, agree to a certain extent. The challenge is, is political. We're living in a time where nuanced opinions and non-extreme opinions are harder to, to legislate, are harder to get through. And so there's like a political survival aspect. And so we have to be part of creating the political conditions by having drivers have a voice, demonstrating that drivers four to one want this uh, versus the alternative, demonstrating the true consequences of 80% of people, at least articulating them and hoping not to demonstrate them in practice. But I think that the challenges have been, it's been hypothetical because it hasn't been real and because uh, political conversations favor kind of extreme opposing views versus kind of nuanced Compromise. I mean, I wonder if we're kind of in a moment where, you know, people are sort of fed up with this idea of trusting businesses, right? I mean, in, in a sense, what you're saying is, hey, you know, we operate in good faith. We can be trusted to operate as a responsible employer and as a responsible business because the market is going to judge us. Users won't use us if we're not doing that. And that makes sense. But at the same time, you know, we're in a moment now where people have heard that message in the past and haven't seen it, right? They haven't seen or realized. Uh, I don't think people trust businesses and I don't think that's crazy. I'm not saying trust us. <laughs> I'm saying let's legislate a solution that works well for drivers, works well for riders, works well for the business, works well for labor. You know, the same thing happened in the early days of Lyft when seven, eight years ago, it was wild to get into someone else's car. It was absolutely something that yeah. people said would not happen. And we started doing background checks. We started doing driving record checks before there was a rule to do it. And I did used to have that philosophy of, oh, well, look, we're, we're doing it. Uh, you know, trust us. But then I, I, I learned quickly and I, and I went to the regulator and I said, you know, we received a cease and desist. And I said, look, like, here's what we're doing, but don't take my word for it. Regulate this. And that led to the state law in California uh, now known as like the TNC category, and that got brought across the country. So I, I agree with you. I think people are fed up listening to not only businesses, but leaders saying, trust me, 
Uh, and I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying listen to the drivers and let's create a new regulation. All right, let's get to some more questions about Lyft. This is from Daniel Kramer. Daniel asks, are you going to start to focus more on autonomous vehicles in, in part because of COVID? Does that change that equation for you at all? We have been working on autonomous vehicles. We have a program called Level 5. Uh, we have a great team and we're making great progress. We also have uh, kind of a partnership model called Open Network, where we've partnered with Waymo and others uh, to bring those vehicles to, to Lyft riders. We actually have some of those uh, in Arizona. So this hasn't changed that. I mean, I think, of course, the ability to create you know health safety through autonomous is definitely quite interesting and, and through designing the vehicle. But it's, it's still a technology limitation uh, and a cost limitation at this point. And so those haven't changed materially during this time. Um, here's a question from William Curtis. Um, says he's a part-time Lyft driver. He wants to know when Lyft will require all riders to upload a photo of themselves for drivers to see. Ah, I love that question. Every year, at least once, I drive on the platform and uh, I was driving and I do it on New Year's and I was doing it uh, this past New Year's and had the same thing happen where a, a rider uh, came with without a photo and then a rider came with a photo and it was such a more delightful and uh, obviously, you know, safe feeling experience when you had the photo and right after that, which is the reason I, I drive and I will try to do it more frequently, uh, right after that had a conversation with the team about uh, improving the rate of photos uploaded. We don't want it to be a blocker in the sense that we don't want to get less rides, which would be less income earning opportunities for you and the, and the company. But we have increased the percent of riders that are posting a photo and we're working on more features to kind of uh, encourage that uh, while they're in the ride to simply take a selfie and things like that. So I agree and, and uh, expect more from us on that. Just for cl clarification here, when you when you actually are a Lyft driver yourself, when you're out there and it says John, and I'm assuming you're in your Toyota Highlander. By the way, yes, do we you just upgraded to a minivan, a, a minivan, Honda okay. Odyssey. All right. So if you see a John driving a Honda Odyssey, you know that it's going to be the co-founder of Lyft who's driving you around. Um, and then you can you can ask him any questions you want. Um, you know, a lot of people ask whether now is a good time to start a business. I mean, you started what would become Lyft during the last financial crisis in 2008 with Logan, your co-founder, who you met on Facebook. Do you think that economic downturns are good moments to start businesses? I think so for, for two reasons. One, depending on the individual, your risk profile might be, you know, the job market might not be as good. And so there may be less risk to taking that risk and starting your own thing. But maybe even more importantly, things are changing. The world is changing. Business is changing. People's preferences and needs are changing. And those are all opportunities. And so I, I think now is a great time uh, to be an entrepreneur. John, you talk about Logan, your co-founder, and I think we're a super close friend of yours as being very kind of... Um, deliberate and methodical and you're kind of slightly more emotional and which is a great balance to have and i mean you you talked about how you're the, you were the one who was like kind of freaking out when things weren't quite going right and i mean now you know you're a big public company you're valued at billions of dollars and despite obviously the huge challenges you have this year um, are you able to kind of manage stress better or or actually are do you still have sleepless nights do you still have anxiety even even now still have lots of anxiety, but much better, I guess, with the, the few years and the kind of the experiences we've had with Lyft to manage that. For me, physical exercise helps a lot. It helps me get out, to, out of my head. Spending time with my daughters. I have a, a four year old and a, and a one year old 
And that is incredibly grounding. They say something funny to me, you know, I, I have to change a diaper or whatever. It is incredibly grounding and, and frankly brings joy to a tough day to kind of spend time with them. So that's been helpful as well. The last question for you, when we when we spoke at the summit, the How I Built the Summit in 2018, I asked you, um, or you, you mentioned how you and you and Logan often ask yourselves, if we were starting over today, uh, what would we do differently? Now that we are here in this very challenging moment, if you were starting over today, what would you do differently? Oh, man, using my question against me, that's good. Um, I think if we were starting over today, I might start with Pink, which we talked about as the subscription. As a, as a way to get people to interact with Lyft, uh, to say, hey, there's a membership service. It's going to be more affordable than owning a car. And we're going to go to battle for you to build the best transportation experience to give you access to bikes, cars, car rental. So I probably maybe start from pink uh, and work, work backwards. Nice. John Zimmer, co-founder, president of Lyft. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's an excerpt from my conversation with John Zimmer. To see our full interview, you can go to facebook.com slash howibuiltthis. And if you want to see all of our past live interviews, you can find them there or at youtube.com slash NPR. And if you want to find out more about the Resilience series or other virtual NPR events, you can go to nprpresents.org. This episode was produced by Candice Lim with help from Will Mitchell, Matt Adams, El Mannion, Gianna Cappadona, John Isabella, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you back here in a few days. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking, what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami? There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.